You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Jane McPherson, the Director of Global Engagement and Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Georgia. She was an organizer for the One Million Bones Project, a nationwide anti-genocide initiative um, that created and laid one million handmade bones in the National Mall. Her work centers around human rights and human rights practice. As well, she is very engaged in local history work. She has had countless, I can't even count them, residencies at the LES Center and has been up here more, like I said, more times than I can count. So today we're going to talk to her about her work, her connection with Lillian Smith, the way that Lillian Smith impacts her work, and about her residencies here. So thank you for joining me, Jane. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's really a pleasure to be here because we are sitting here, uh, you know, up on the mountain, up on Lil's Mountain. Right. I've done a few podcasts actually from the LES Center, actually sitting here looking out at the mountain, the view that Lillian would have would have seen from the common room, right? From one of her bedrooms. And it is a special spot, especially right now during the fall with the leaves changing and the colors changing, which I don't think will last very much longer, but they're here. So, like I said, you've been up here countless times. And you've kind of talked to me a little bit before about your introduction to Lillian Smith. So can you kind of tell us how you found her or how you kind of came across her and then how you came across the center and coming here as a resident? Sure. I mean, I think in my case, those things, the <laughs> the progression wasn't fully logical. Um I did my doctoral work in Tallahassee, Florida, and several of my writer friends, uh, Ned Stuckey French, uh, Diane Roberts, um, and others had come up here and told me about this place and its wonders, and had suggested that when I was lucky enough to get a position at the University of Georgia that, you know, I look into it, see what, see, see if there might be space for me. And initially, I, 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 came, I moved to Georgia in 2015, and um, I do a lot of work internationally, so I was at that time traveling a great deal. And I, I had imagined that this place was really for creative writers, and my work is really around human rights and social justice, and I, I wasn't sure if I would be a fit because I knew nothing about right. Lillian Smith. And so I, when I wrote for my first residency here, which was not until 2018, um, you know, I, I, was, I was very excited to come, but really I was introduced to Lillian Smith by John Templeton when he brought me into Peeler Cabin when I came up here for the first time. It, so, so you came up as a resident just as the artist residency or as an artist scholarly resident and didn't know much about her. I knew it nothing. Sounds like, it sounds like a few of our residents that we've had up here. I knew nothing. Yes, and I, I've, I've had the opportunity now, since I do come frequently, to orient other people who are equally clueless. But indeed, I, um, 
I knew nothing. So I arrived, but I was immediately kind of transformed by this space. I hadn't known what to expect. I had no idea that I was entering this time capsule. Um, and I, so Peeler Cabin, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, it's full of books. It's full of these books from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Books on, I mean, they're Lillian's books, but also they're books on gardening and nature. There are books on history and philosophy, books on psychology. Um, and, and, and there are teacups, little teacups that my grandmother might have used to drink coffee. There's China all and, over this place. And just, it's, you know, I felt like I was walking into the past, um, but into the past of a very intellectual family. And uh, when I, I began to read Lillian's work, I, you know, especially, let's see, I guess I began with Killers of the Dream, and I, I was stunned by its relevance to my own work because here I had moved to Georgia. I teach social work. Um, I've been a social worker in the post-slavery South for 20 plus years. And just thinking about whiteness and race and white supremacy and ideology um, as, as Lillian talks about it and talks about sort of being indoctrinated as a child and um, it was very powerful for me, and I and it immediately I immediately brought Lillian um, into my classrooms. Uh, the Breaking the Silence film had just been made, right. so I got involved in showings of that at the University of Georgia. And um, I don't know, she really she also made me very interested in Georgia. You know the way she was looking at the South and at her own experience. It it made me want to teach social work through a very local lens. So one thing you mentioned, there's a couple of things you mentioned that I want to tease out and I'll, I'll save one for later, but you mentioned that when you discovered, so when you started reading Lillian, you brought her into the classroom almost immediately. And you're teaching at UGA, a very Southern school, very predominantly white institution, right? So how did your kind of students respond? I don't know what class you taught it in. Um, upper level, lower level, whatever, but how did they respond or how did these different levels, you know, respond to Lil in the classroom? And what did you use? Did you use Killers of the Dream or other things? Um, Killers of the Dream is what I have taught in the classroom. So, you know, social work is a traditionally, you know, it's a, it is a, it is a profession that emerges from middle class white women in, you know, in the late 19th century, really. Um, I mean, Lillian very much is in a kind of social work. It's this sort of, she is a social reformer. She's very much in that tradition. Um, You know, she was writing and thinking more than, um, you know, reaching out into homes of people living in poverty. But um, her way of thinking, which was about social transformation, certainly is relevant to social work teaching. I mean, my students generally, my white students and my black students, I mean, we talk about race in the classroom. Right. Um, 
social workers are often working across race, almost, almost always working across class or educational divide. And, you know, you know, from my perspective, it's absolutely critical that we discuss that and talk about the meaning of that. So she's, I think, um, I also think her, her critiques of capitalism have been uh, really important to me. Uh, the University of Georgia School of Social Work is located in, old, in an old cotton mill. And um, one of the ways that I lift out the very local histories is I, I teach my students about the history of this mill um, where enslaved laborers as well as child laborers worked. You know, and, um, and just talk about what, you know, how is it that the, the wealth that was generated by the mill maybe created the middle class and upper middle class families where the women then had leisure to join the women's clubs and then, you know, become kind of social workers or charitable to the mill families. Or that the know. money went north to different entities up there, as Lillian points out, you know, in some of her stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our mill was local, so that money was was very local, you know, really built the, the money of the Athens factories and the other cotton mills in Athens, really built the wealth in Athens before the Civil War um, and afterwards. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, she, she her, you know, I love her, her. She talks about her father paid the prevailing low wages. Oh, yeah. Um, in his mill. And said, that, and said that God helped him win the vote against prohibition because he told his mill workers to vote against, you know, or to vote for prohibition, right? Right. So God helped him win the vote for prohibition. He saw that as a good thing, buying the votes. Right. And I think that that's another aspect of, you know, as I personally read Lillian now, um, you know, we're all reading one hour for the Lillian Smith Book Club, which is something you've started, which I really appreciate. And I just finished a passage where she describes the library, like in great detail. It's somebody yeah. else's library, but I was like, oh, this is that library. This is that library. The woman called Jane in, in one hour clearly lives up here. <laughs> um, but, but something that, you know, it's this critique of, of capitalism, as I was saying, but also a critique of totalitarianism. And I think her... Um, you know, she's very clear about kind of politicians who would, where the end justifies the means. You know, I think she is very much not with that. No, she um, is not. And it is, it is a pleasure, I think, at this time, and also really important at this time, for us, you know, to, to be reading people from the past and present who have found hope and a way forward in difficult political times. Um, well, that's what I certainly think these are. That's what everybody says about her, too, is that for all of the... And I wouldn't necessarily say her work is doom and gloom, but for all of the kind of, I guess, scary aspects of her work, that she is very hopeful and that she sees hope. And that does come through. I haven't really seen it in one hour yet. I still have a, a little ways to go and finish it this weekend, but... She is very hopeful that there is a better future, right? And kind of my thing is, she has ways forward, but those ways, do they ever come to fruition? I don't, I don't know how to phrase that question. <laughs> but, but one other thing that you were talking about, this kind of, I guess, leads into that question. You mentioned going to Peeler Cottage, and that's where, 
Annie, Annie Laurie, or Petey, her sister lived, of course, and then um, Petey's daughter lived, right? When they were up here after Lil died. So this space, after Lil passed away in 66, was a communal space. You know, you had Paula living up here. You had Esther living up here. You had Anna Laurie and little Anna Laurie living up here. You had Frank living down where the Johns live right now and then moving, of course, right? You had this as a communal space for people. And Lil always made it a communal space by having groups of individuals come up here, not just for the camp, but as I talked about with, I think, Melanie Morrison on the podcast I did with her, her mom came up here with a group of students in the 30s. How great. You know, and spent a weekend. So there was always something coming up here, going on up here. It was a space of intellectual, you know, fervor. And what you said earlier talking about um, Peeler Cottage was that you felt like you were transported to a past of a very intellectual family in a very intellectual space. And I just kind of want to get your sense of that. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't just say intellectual. Like I'd say, I would say communal. Mm. Like what is kind of the importance of a space like this now, but I would also say historically to have these conversations and to have this kind of freedom. And that's what the class, the middle class brought her. This freedom to think about these issues and to reflect and to do work that's important in her writing, but not just her. Like it is Paula and everyone else as well. So I guess the one thing, I guess when you think about what is the importance of this place, um, I think that this place really invites those of us who are lucky to visit it um, to think about what matters in life. Um, you know, this is a this is a very pared down space. Right? This is a a place to come on a retreat without a lot of amenities, um, and it especially if you're reading Lil while you're here, you are you are you know, thinking deep thoughts. At least that's my hope, right? I come up here and I try to um, really think about what is, what is the meaning of my work? Where do I want to go with this? And I think you mentioned something that um, I haven't experienced here, which is the real communal space. I'm usually up here alone or possibly with one other person. Um, but I think, I think the history of bringing people together here is really important and you know, I would love to be part of future gatherings here. Um, I know one gathering you mentioned to me that I'd love to learn more about um, is a what she called an interracialist, I think, gathering in 1943, where she brought women together um, up on Screamer Mountain in Georgia, black and white women, to just stay in the same space, to eat in the same space, and to learn about each other's lives in the same space. That was a pretty brave and, and remarkable that, things to do. That's something that I, that I started digging into that I need to dig into more. And I think that that was not the only time that that happened. But it's the most concrete example of that event happening up here. And I think what's really important about that event is the people she had up here. Because whenever I tell people about that event, I tell them she had... She invited Mary McLeod Bethune, which she knew Bethune, 
And, and she Bethune was then eighty years old in, uh, in nineteen forty. I don't remember. There was just a She's letter. Really there was just a letter old. that the Hargrip published from the fifties, where they were going up. The McCarthy Commission was going after Bethune, and Lillian wrote a letter in support of her. So I don't remember how old Bethune was. I, Bethune couldn't make it because she she was going to make it, but she became ill. I think um, she sent a letter to Dami Day, who was the camp director at Camp Marywood, which is in Sapphire, North Carolina, just about an hour from here. And she couldn't make it. That was actually the camp that had the first interracial um, YMCA meeting. So, which I think the camping organization angle is a really other interesting angle to think about with all of this, and that's something I don't know about because supposedly she gave speeches to the YMCA, the YWCA, the camping organizations in the Southwest. So, and I have never seen those speeches, right? I mean, this was when she was running Laurel Falls. In 43, she was running Laurel Falls. But she sent an invitation to Mary Church Terrell. I do know Mary Church Terrell was 80. She was 80, yes. And she made it, she came. Civil rights activist born during the Civil War, um, black civil rights activist. She sent an invitation to Islanda Robeson, Paul Robeson's wife. She came. And the letter that Islanda wrote to her, too, Islanda said, I got copies of this piece from South Today called um, There Are Things That Whites Could Do. I forgot the exact title. Addressed, addressed to intelligent Southern whites, there are things you can do. <laughs> Which is basically a list of things that you could do as a white person to show allyship or solidarity and to learn more, right? Some of it's really easy, like read a book by a black author, stuff like that. You know, sit, um, give your seat to a black passenger on the bus, just, just different things. Some things that won't get you in trouble, some things that later on that she talks about will get you in trouble. But what was really interesting with Islanda's response is she was like, I got this and I put them strategically around the area where I live so people can pick it up and read it. So she's at, as long as actively putting these things, this pamphlet out with this list of things white people can do, right? So she made it. There were people from um, some of the Divine Nine um, sororities, right? I think that made it. There were white women who made it. She had a long list of white and black women that she invited. And they came up here. This was in September 43. And uh, there's, Two other big things I remember. There's one thing I remember. All of this is digitized, I think, at, from UGA now because they're working on digitizing their papers. But there was a woman f whose family was in Clayton. This is a white woman. And she wrote to Lillian and said, I want to come, but please do not announce it or tell anybody. I'll come by the train. I have family up there. If they find out I'm coming up there, they'll want to talk to me, figure out why I'm coming up there, all this stuff. So she wanted to be very secretive about her coming up here. This woman did. The other thing that I found, well, actually two other things. I found addresses for her sister Esther. And her sister Esther at that time, she had two addresses that I found. One was from the invites and then one was from something later with Mary Church Terrell, which I'll get to. But she lived on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta. And then she had another address next to Spelman. So... The places where Esther lived, I think, were important, you know, in, in the black community or around the black community in Atlanta. Uh, the Mary Church Terrell things, which are archived at the Library of Congress, after the event, Terrell's secretary wrote to Paula and to Lil and said, you know, she had a great time here. Could she say and talk about it? And what was really fascinating to me 
And not, not shocking, but I think fascinating was that Paula wrote back and said, please do not say that we had this event. Because if, the, if word of this got out, and this is 43, if word of this got out, she doesn't explicitly say what would happen. She's like, you know, things may happen if, if word of this gets out. So they were afraid of violence against them up of, here. of something. I don't know. And remember, there were, there were two fires up here. One was in 40, I think 45? Uh, it was during the camp, but I think that was a kitchen fire. I don't think that was set by anybody. But then the one in 55 was set by two boys. And there's, we don't know if it was clan motivated or whatever, if they were just screwing around up here. We don't know. But I think that it's a really kind of interesting thing. And that, that discussion in Killers of the Dream, I really think that that discussion where she talks about the white woman who knows eating with the black woman is right and morally right and there's nothing wrong with it, still gets nauseous and can't eat because of everything she's grown up with. I really think that that happens at that meeting. I don't know. She's not explicit about it. Doesn't Lil say she was so nervous during that meeting she right. lost five pounds? That Lil did? Yeah. Oh, I don't know about I that. Think that's that's in the papers that she was so I haven't read that one. That she lost that she thought she lost five pounds. So maybe that there's a relationship between those lines. Maybe so. But but then she also flips and says that, that a black woman felt the same way too, right? So it she's 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 pointing out that even though they knew that this this is right, that there's still these deep rooted things that you mentioned. But the one other kind of side thing that I want to mention about that thing, there's a spring-fed swimming pool here that's still here. It's overgrown. That's like an Olympic-sized swimming pool that the campers use. And she wrote, following it, that they had a great time swimming in the pool in September in the mountains in northeast Georgia that is spread by that is fed by spring water. I can't imagine how cold that was. <laughs> well. You know, it is a beautiful pool. It would be an amazing pool if it were. It would be an amazing pool if it was functional right now. The turtles have taken it over. So, so one another piece of my work that Lillian has really helped me think about is is to think about whiteness and to think about kind of how how I'm really looking at the late 19th, early 20th century in Athens and how social services were beginning. And in my mind, um, when I first entered this space, I didn't know who the clients would be of these, of these white middle-class women. And, but what I learned and what is not surprising would not, and what would absolutely not have surprised Lillian one bit is that these middle-class white women were helping white families. And that there was kind of a parallel track um, in the black community in Athens. Um, there's a remarkable educator called Judea Jackson Harris, whose, whose life I've become very interested in. And um, Judea, she, you know, she started a school, but she also started a land co-op. So the way that I am looking into at least early social work education or early social work experiments. Many of them don't call themselves social work. Uh, social work doesn't become a profession really until 1915. But so often there, you know, these people that I would think of as social reformers are educators or club women, but not necessarily social workers, right? Um, 
But what, what, what you see, or what I've found at least so far, is mostly that the white women, these white club women, are, are organizing settlements and schools for the mill kids and families. And then you have um, black men and women who are working on uplift activities in the black community, right. building schools, but, but also beyond schools, as I say with Judea Jackson Harris, doing things that are, you know, pretty radical. Um, you know, putting, getting money together and helping people buy cooperative land. Yeah, doing and, a co-op. Um, you know, and really um, working on skill development and building, uh, you know, resources for teachers and, uh, you know, just <clears throat> capacity building in, in capacity building rather than charity creation, if you know what I mean. And then, but I found a few places where you see black and white interacting and those are, are very interesting spaces to teach about um, because the, uh, the, the racist ideas are, are very much, you know, front and center. Right. Um, you know, I, I found letters from uh, club women in the early 1900s just talking about, oh, how we should help the black women because, you know, their kids are becoming criminals um, and, and, and they are, you know, a propensity to become criminals. And With this, no question about the systems that... Right. And, and definitely, and it was in this particular example, a, a woman has come to the, a black woman has come to the white club women to say, we really need help for a daycare for the children of the women who are working in the white family homes, right? And, you know, the, the response is, well, don't you have money, don't you have your own women's club to help them? Um, you know, and that's a wonderful example to teach uh, because, you know, in St. Louis, it's like, what would be an answer? Well, I guess we could think of paying these women higher wages so mm -hmm. that they could put their kids in a daycare and create a daycare for them. Um, or perhaps that the... Uh, the white families would so, feel required to provide those services. So this is the discussion of universal daycare that we're still having today? <laughs> it, is the, it is still the discussion of universal daycare, absolutely. You know, why is it that children cannot raise themselves? There was, there was another thought that I had while you were talking, so I was thinking back to Killers of the Dream again. So how would you view... So would the, would the women who took Jane from her family mm. and put her in Lillian's family and then removed her, would that be the club women? Because she describes her as club women. Would that be kind of the group that you're talking about? That probably is. So, I mean, that story, which is so remarkable, is what I guess what we assume to have been an albino child. Um, well, she says she, was an, she says she was an orphan, too. So it sounds like she was adopted, I think, if I remember... So I don't know. I mean, it's hard to understand. It is. But, but what we, the story that's out. told in Killers is that this very light-skinned child and is taken from the black family and put in Lillian's house because initially they understand that she is they a say that white, she's white child. But then... And she does, she does talk about this in multiple pieces and a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just want to point that out. Yeah, but you know the way that they understand it. And then she is removed from the Smith house because... They say she's e a black child. No, she's a black child. Right. But Lillian has already had the experience of seeing how very like their skin tone is. Um, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I think that, that that could be that certainly would have been Lillian was born what in eighteen ninety seven? 
So and this would have been the early 1900s, right? So, um, you know, right in the very early 1900s, because Lily's just a very young school child at that point. Um, you know, yeah, probably that's the women's club of, uh, you know, Jasper, Florida, that organized that organized that move, because the women. I mean, this was again. This was very common in the United States that you had middle class women were organizing themselves for the betterment of their society. Um, you know, they were getting involved in the issues of the day, uh, women's suffrage, uh, child labor. Um, and in the South, uh, often uh, in favor of child labor and often against women's suffrage, um, but nevertheless very much getting involved in those issues and certainly in prohibition, as you say. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that that passage is always, I think, important to me, but also fascinating in the way that Lillian frames it too, because she goes out of her, I don't think, well, not goes out of her way, but she initially, every time you see Jane described, it is as white. I think her use of language there is very intentional with what she's doing, and then it drops off, and you don't you don't see another reference to her phenotype until her mother says something and she calls she calls her. Uh, I think she says Negro is what she uses, right? So that's the only other, I think, connotation or reference to the phenotype. But the fact that she frames her as white, I think, is important because she's showing the social constructions of these issues. Absolutely. That was exactly where I was going with that. I mean, I think that's part of what is, part of where Lillian is such an important voice is it she sees race as a social construction very obviously right. you know you know and i think we maybe uh imagine you know ourselves to have in to be part of a, a generation that invented that idea this is this is not this is not a, no, new, it's not idea. a new idea at all um it's not even new with lillian <laughs> right it's not new with lillian um these things we we rediscover uh, or discover anew again and again. Yeah. Um, but you know, they. I think she she does point out, and it is it is an idea that's extremely useful to me as a teacher and as a thinker that the the structure of our society is artificial. Yeah. It is not natural, um, and in the same way that race is constructed. You know, I think um, certainly in, in, as a social worker, something that's very important to me sim- that is similar is that poverty is also a political choice, right? We, we have many people living in poverty in this country. We could do it differently, yeah. right? We, we don't, that is a, a choice that it's made, you know, um, poverty is not natural to human beings. It's just, you know, <laughs> if you are, if you are <clears throat> without, so she, I think she's very critical of class in that way too, and she sees how just sort of fortunate, but also, but a kind of roulette wheel it is that she landed in the, in the family that she landed in, in the social class that she landed in. I think that's an important thing that you said, that these debates are not new. Because, these ideas too, and I would say debates. Because one thing I always try and stress with students, especially right now, or with just people right now, especially with the latest culture war debate, specifically around the ways we teach, you know, in the classroom. 
and what we teach in the classroom is that these discussions about, I, I go to the discussions about history, and I think Lillian fits into this too. The discussions we have about history, I always point them back, and I go back to 1829, I can go back further, <laughs> but that you have black authors during the early, mid-1800s saying that there were problems with George Washington. There were problems with Thomas Jefferson. They did think, Frederick Douglass says it, that the, the decoration's good, but there are issues, right? So fast forward to Reconstruction. You have authors doing it. Douglass still saying you have Du Bois coming up, right? Or past Reconstruction. You have Lillian saying the same things. So you have these threads continuing, specifically within this discussion of what we teach and the history we teach. I would say, and of course, she's butting up against the United Dodgers of the Confederacy and the Lost Cause myth and things like that. But that these debates are, are nothing new within these kind of constructs, right? And we're constructing the, the knowledge and the history that we're teaching. That's what we're doing. Not just history, but everything. Right. Yeah, actually, so what's, on Monday, I'll be teaching uh, <laughs> about two 19th century white women in Athens. One is Millie Rutherford, and the other is Lucy May Stanton. Millie Rutherford was the historian of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. She really uh, spearheaded the move to rewrite the Southern textbooks, and so the you know she she codified the Lost Cause myth, and she was she was she, the one who had the stamp unjust to the South put in the all right. exactly, and she. She was a very popular speaker in the United States in the uh, late 19th and first 20 years of the 20th century. She would dress in her sort of hoop skirt uh, costume and she went all over the place, not just in the South. Um, so, you know, she was one kind of image of a white woman. But then you have another one, um, Lucy May Stanton, who's her contemporary in Athens, was running peace meetings and was for women's suffrage where Millie was against. Um, you know, and you have spaces where they become complicated. And I think this is what is interesting to me also, and I think to Lillian, like, you know, Miss Millie is, I, I loathe her ideas, right? And she was very instrumental in improving public health in Athens. Uh, she was involved in these anti-fly campaigns oh, and teaching um, teaching kids in the school. So it's like, how do we how do we look at these characters and see the good and the harm that what's, they did? What's the woman in North Carolina? I read about her in Mothers of Massive Resistance from McRae, but she was very comp she was like. McRae's Mothers of Massive Resistance is a book that talks about Southern women who were fighting against resistance, you know, segregation or desegregation and other issues against the UN, all this stuff, and the, the role of white women with all this in the, in the mid-1900s. There's a woman from North Carolina that was like very progressive ideas. She was, you know, with the mills in North Carolina and all of, the, all of that stuff, but then also her retroactive ideas on race. So like there are progressive things that she did and also... It's kind of the same thing I tell my son, because he's very into the presidents. He can name every president, mm -hmm. every vice president, the years they served. And there's always something good with the president, but there's always something bad, right? I, I don't think a president could ever just be good, because there's just too much influence. It's not just the president. But anyways, but kind of saying that there are things that are good, there are things that are bad. 
And I think that's what, well, I always go back to James Baldwin's quote, right? And I'll probably, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but basically, you know, I'm an American citizen. That is why I, I have the right to crit. I love this country more than any country in the world. Therefore, I have the right to criticize her, right? You know, there are, we have to take the good and the bad and we have to parse it out. And, and if we want to make a better society, that's what we got to do. These are critical ideas right now, right? George Orwell is another person who really puts that forward. You know, patriotism is not about blind faith. It, you know, you, it is about wanting your country to be better, right? We should be aspirational. Um, right. What ma- what makes you a good citizen? It is being critical and thinking, right? Yeah. Or one of the, one of the components. Sorry. Well, yeah. So I think that that issue of of I mean, we are complicated, and I think that is something that um, Lillian was also aware of. Um, and again, a piece of, of my teaching is I am interested, you know, my students showing them this stuff about the past, showing them Miss Millie and her, um, you know, her horrific racism and um, lost cause narrative, you know, my students tend to be shocked. Um, you know, not surprised, but it's still, it's pretty ugly when you read it. Um, and, and yet, you know, I'm wondering what is it that people will look at that we are doing now? How is it that, you know, the, the slavery and the child labor that took place in the building where I teach, they were legal. These were, you know, (laughs) legal forms of labor. These were... These were non-controversial, generally, in Athens at the time that they were happening. Like, what are the practices that we're involved in now that people are going to look back on? Uh, Natasha Trethway, the poet, has a nice quote about that. I think, you know, it's so much easier to look and see what an atrocity that was than, you know, what atrocity this is. Um, you know, I don't believe that we are better than the people in the past. Um, I think we are still mixed. So how do we, you know, how do we move forward with the better side of our imperfections? Yeah, I think about things like that too. So what would you like, as we wrap up, what would you like listeners to take away from Lillian or just from your experiences here? Hmm. Well, I highly recommend that anyone who's listening apply to come up here as a resident it is a this is a wonderful place to do your thinking and your working and your painting um or your science experiments or your science experiments and i certainly uh, recommend reading killers of the dream it is um it is remarkably relevant now yeah i think killers should be required reading for any classroom so thank you for taking time with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag DopeWithLime on social media or get in touch with us at LESCenter at Piedmont.edu. 
You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.